were all saddened by the death of Dr. Meredith, even though it was not unexpected. Uh, we know that there's nothing more sure in life than the end of life. It's going to happen. Uh, we can't avoid it. Uh, we try to postpone it, oftentimes, as long as we can, but it's going to come to all of us. Tomorrow and the days ahead, we'll have many tributes to Dr. Meredith. We have the funeral itself. We have the visitation. We have a slideshow that I think will be shown there, as well as what we saw today that will be available for any who wish to view it again. And it will go online, and many other thousands will have the opportunity of viewing it. So we have a lot that is happening. We have various video productions, obviously our festival film this year, the Feast of Tabernacles. I think we would expect that we would uh, look in a little bit more depth at the life of Dr. Meredith. I think that's appropriate. To mourn and remember is appropriate. We can go back to the Old Testament and we see that when Jacob died, they mourned for him for a period of 70 days, and they took him back up to Israel, or what we call Israel today, and then there was a period of seven days of mourning. We don't read of long periods of time in the New Testament. Of course, we did have Moses. That was another major one that they mourned for, and Aaron. But in the New Testament, we don't read of long periods of mourning, but we do read that they did mourn. We have the example of Lazarus, and it's very clear from the account that people were mourning over the death of Lazarus. And then we have the example of Dorcas, or Tabitha, in Acts the ninth chapter. Let's just turn over there very quickly, and we'll notice that. Acts 9, and verse 37. We won't read the whole account. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And then in verse 39, then Peter arose and went with them. And when he come, he brought them, or they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So they were looking at her legacy, the things that she had done. And apparently she was a very uh, loved woman, a woman who spent time making things for others, tunics, as it says here, garments. And they were remembering her works during her life and no doubt um, shedding many tears. As it says here, they were weeping as well. But they wanted to show the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. And so that's a natural thing for us to do, to look at the gift of the individual who has died to those that live on. And we're certainly going to be doing that with Dr. Meredith. And yet, it tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and I'm not going to take all of the uh, scriptures that uh, will be mentioned tomorrow, so I'll just read one verse out of this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And brethren, we do have hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. And I know that the world doesn't think that's possible for the most part. But as I've said so many times, I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't get it out of my mind. When we understand the reality of life itself and what a miracle it is, scientists tell us that the, the simplest bacterial cell is more complicated than any machine that man has ever made. 
And we've made some very complicated machines. And I was just thinking about it uh, earlier today. Our bodies and all of the various organs, and you know what? They're attached. They work together. The air comes in the lungs, but then it has to be circulated through the whole body. Now, anybody that just thinks this all happened by accident is sadly delusional. It did not happen by accident. Life is an incredible, unbelievable miracle. And when we look into the cellular life, every single cell in our bodies and what they produce, it's amazing. And they call them molecular machines. And one of them spins the speed of a jet engine as it separates the DNA into two strands. And one strand it copies directly. The other one has to copy backward in loops. How did all this happen? As we saw in one video, I think I showed it here, our bone marrow is producing 100 trillion molecules of hemoglobin per second. That's not me talking, that's scientists talking. 100 trillion molecules, hemoglobin molecules per second. It's happening at lightning speed. And so to consider that God can raise someone from the dead, as Paul said to, when he was on trial, why should it seem so strange that God should raise someone from the dead? There's never been a time in our history when we've had more evidence of God's existence than today. And yet scientists refuse to accept it. Why? Because they're afraid that they might have to obey. That's really what it comes down to. They want to do their own thing. But there is a resurrection. And we can stand confident in that fact. That is our hope. And so we don't have to sorrow as others who have no hope. We will sorrow. And each of us sorrows in different ways, and it takes longer for some than it does others to get over it. That's just because we're all different. We're made different. I certainly saw that in my wife's reaction and my reaction to losing parents. I think the females of the species tends to take things a little bit more emotionally. And that's okay. That's fine. But we're all different. And even whether we're male or female, we're not like every other male or female when it comes to mourning. So we do mourn, but nevertheless, we have hope. And that's why Dr. Merrith did not fear death. He mentioned that to me many times, not in some sort of a, a bravado way, but just as a matter of fact. And I have no doubt whatsoever, as Mr. Merrith, his son, said on the video, he didn't fear death. He knew that there is a resurrection, and that's what he was waiting for. His influence on the church, on the church of God, is probably much greater than we realize right now today. Sometimes it's only after the death of an individual that we fully comprehend how much we miss that individual. We often think how he helped Mr. Herbert Armstrong build the work. At least some of us go back far enough, and we've heard the stories, of course, but Many of us are reminded of freshman Bible class at Ambassador College. Just for a show of hands, how many of you went to Ambassador College and took Dr. Mayer's class? 
Okay, so there are a number of us around here. We were taught by Dr. Merritt and Freshman Bible. That was uh, the Gospels and Acts. He also taught the Epistles of Paul class. But he taught us so many other times in ministerial meetings and forums, assemblies, and various other occasions. And so for some of us, he wasn't just the presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God, but he was someone who helped to form who we are today. And we can be so thankful. We think of his heartfelt and energetic sermons. We remember how he stood up at the age of 62 to revive the work that was being destroyed. We remember a time when there were, I'd like to call them the gang of whatever it was, the number in San Diego that wanted to take over. They got the assets, but they didn't get the people. And they were far better at destroying and scattering, including themselves, than they were of ever building. Some people are destroyers. Others are builders. Dr. Merrith was a builder. And so, in many respects, we started over again. We are what we are today. God used him in a very special way through difficult times. In difficult times, it seems, in the church are always with us. You can go back to the book of Acts. It was not a smooth ride. You can read the, uh, the epistles of Paul. It wasn't a smooth ride. It was up and down, constant problems, because there is an adversary who's going to do everything he can to disrupt the church and God's people, because he knows what his fate is and he knows what ours is. So while this is an appropriate time to, um, to mourn the loss of Dr. Meredith, uh, we all know what he wanted us to do, and that was to go forward with the work. We sang a, a hymn, By This Shall All Men Know, and I, I was struck by this line. The, the third verse, uh, the second line, it says, Do the work and feed the flock, build your house upon the rock. Now, in so many ways, that really encapsulates what we must do. We must, you know, preach the gospel, do the work. We must feed the flock, and we need to remain grounded on a rock, to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and what he has taught us, the true head, the true leader of the church of God. And so we're going to move forward. And in the remainder of this sermon, I'm going to talk about some other things. We have time tomorrow and the days ahead for tributes for Dr. Meredith. But he wants us to move forward. He wanted us to move forward. He didn't want us to stop. A week from tomorrow is the Feast of Pentecost. And in preparation for Pentecost, I'm going to answer two fundamental questions. One is somewhat technical. I hope you've had your coffee today. And the other is the answer to a question that you've probably never asked yourself. You're not ignorant of the whole picture of what I'm going to explain here, but uh, sometimes it's the questions that we never think of. So the technical question involves how we arrive at Pentecost next Sunday. And that's a big question, and I'm not going to try to tackle every aspect of it. Uh, We have a study paper that was written back in about 1974, 
about 30 pages long, with all the technicalities of it. But, but I want to bring out something that is brought out in an article in the Living Church News. And I hope this, this is the one, uh, Choose Life Over Lentils, May-June issue on page 14. And the title of it is, How Do You Count Pentecost? by the late John O'Gwynn. It's a very short article. And I thought that it would still be helpful to cover some of that because uh, it is a little bit of a technical issue. I remember when I first heard it, I didn't understand it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't. Uh, I hope I can explain it in a way that you can understand it. But if you understand the big picture, you can go back and you can dig into it and you can sort it out yourself. There's not that much to dig into. But it's only when you prove it to yourself that you really begin to understand it. So I'm going to give you the, the keys, and you have the article by Mr. O'Gwynn, and you can go back and you can figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, then just ask some of us, and we'd be glad to explain it. But the second question is, why is there a seemingly misplaced verse in Leviticus 23? In Leviticus 23, there's a verse that seems out of context. And we're going to look at that verse and find out why that is the case. And from these questions, we're going to draw two relevant lessons for us at this critical time. Two questions that need to be answered, but two critical lessons that we can learn, or two important lessons, relevant lessons at this critical time. Following the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, Israel came to Mount Sinai where God entered into a covenant with them. We can just quickly note that in Exodus, the 19th chapter. And verse 1, it says, On the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Now, it is interesting, it was the third month. Very significant point. And then in verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will indeed obey my voice. And, you know, isn't that the critical thing of, in, in the world today? People don't want to obey God. And look at the mess we're getting ourselves into. And we move from one perversion to another, and all the while... The world becomes a more dangerous place. We've had about four terrorist attacks in the last, what, 48 hours, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. Children being blown apart. Of course, they probably shouldn't have been there at that concert anyway because of the, the nature of the concert, the performer. But nevertheless, they were children. Innocent in that sense, many of them. They didn't know any better. We're not picking on them because of where they were. It's just probably, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in tomorrow's world, we won't have that type of concert. But it's sad that someone would blow himself up just so they can hurt others and all the people that were hurt by it. We don't want to obey God. And it says, now therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God was going to enter into a covenant with the people at that time. Now, what kind of a covenant was it? Well, we read elsewhere that this was a marriage covenant. Notice Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. And verse 8. The whole chapter is about God's love for Israel, for his people. The title in my Bible says, God's love for Jerusalem. But it's not just Jerusalem. It's God's love for his people. And here in verse 1 it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. But we know that Jerusalem was a type of the house of Israel. You can read that in the fourth chapter, about verses 1 through 5. It was, I think, verse 4 specifically. It says that this, the city that he's portraying, Jerusalem, was a type for the house of Israel. This was a message for all of us, for our time. And so he says, again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the eternal God to Jerusalem, or the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed rubbed with salt, nor uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you. And then notice verse 6, and he says, When I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, Live. And I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. You became mine. You became God's. Notice Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3. What does it mean, you became mine? And verse 4. It says, will you not uh, from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep you to the ends? That's not the right verse. What am I looking for? Verse 14. Anyway, it says, yeah, verse 14. It says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. God says to Israel, I am married to you. I will take you from one city and so on and so forth. It was a marriage covenant that God made with Israel. Now, stepping back for a moment, historically, both Passover and Pentecost have created great controversy within the church of God and without the church of God. 
There's always been the controversy is Passover on the 14th or the 15th. The Bible, I think, is extremely clear on the subject, but there are those who confuse it and can't quite get that right. Pentecost is another issue that has been confusing down through the years. Even Mr. Armstrong had a problem understanding the exact day of Pentecost. But once he understood, he made sure that the church was on track to keep Pentecost at the right time and the right way. And as I said, we had about a 30-page study paper on the subject. And he checked it out, and once he understood, he didn't wait to make a decision. He made that decision himself. He didn't take a vote on it. Now, there are individuals who set themselves up as the authority on this subject or some other subject. Nice people in many cases, but when you get to a certain point, they can be very stubborn. And they're going to hold on to whatever their ideas are. I remember a particular extreme example in this. A man that I talked to one time, and he said, No holy day falls on Sunday except Pentecost. And I said, Excuse me? I explained that unleavened bread one does about one year and eight fall on Pentecost. I'm sorry, on Sunday. And he says, And I went on a little bit, and he said, Passover always falls on Wednesday. And, you know, obviously he didn't understand a lot of things. But he kind of concluded by saying, I've made up my own calendar. And that's about what it amounts to. I've made up my own calendar. Calendar issues sometimes are controversial. And so you'll have someone who comes up with a calendar that doesn't agree with the one that we use. And you can read the paper, and it sounds very good, until you read another paper by somebody else, and it sounds just great, but it has a different... It's a different calendar. And you can read a third one and so forth. The only thing they agree upon, those who say they can construct the calendar with the Bible alone, is that they don't agree with what we teach, but they don't agree with each other. But their only agreement is that what we have is not correct. That's the only agreement that they have. So we have people coming up with different ideas. And so lesson number one that I want to get across today is the church must decide true doctrine. It's left up to the church to decide true doctrine, not to every individual. Let's notice over in Ephesians 4, and I always find this very interesting because when you get into the subject of of church government, It's always uh, interesting. When you go to this passage of Scripture, uh, there's never a real answer. It's deflect. Well, what about this over here? But nobody that that I know of has ever been able to answer this Scripture to this Scripture when it comes to the fact that there must be government in the church. It says in verse 11, well, let's start back in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, Ephesians 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what God wants us to have, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, how do we come to this unity? 
How do we maintain this unity? Verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. That's what our role is. That's what we want to do as ministers is build up the body of Christ. And we can't just decide that I'm going to be an apostle uh, tomorrow or I'm going to be a prophet because somebody made some funny pronouncement over me. We can't decide those things for ourselves. We can't set ourselves up. That's not for each individual to decide. But it says he's put some in the church, first apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is why God has placed the ministry in the church, to keep us together, to build us up, to, to grow in the measure and the stature of Christ. And so often when people get off on this little tangent here and that tangent over there and they decide that they have some gift that God has revealed to them, it's, it's either a question that has been well sorted out by the church over a period of time or it's some little picky point that doesn't amount to anything anyway. But people get off track. And brethren, we have to be aware that there is a spirit out there. And if he can get you off track at this time, he'll do so. Every time there's a change, any sort of change, it's a time when things come out of the woodwork. People come out of the woodwork. I was mentioning this morning, we had a minister in one particular area that I was serving in. When the breakup in Worldwide took place, he'd been a local elder, but suddenly he was overseeing that congregation for a period of time until I, I came along. And, and he'd always believed that mushrooms and uh, something else were not clean. I forget what it was. Mushrooms were, we shouldn't eat mushrooms. And so he began to teach that. And then he concluded because he watched some video, a couple videos by uh, some individuals that the earth and the universe is only 6,000 years of age. And so he was teaching that. He was showing those videos till I found out about it. But he was doing that. Who knows how long he believed those things, but because certain circumstances changed, all of a sudden the problems came up to the fore. And now, I, I believe he's dead by now, but at that time he eventually not only left the church, but he left God altogether, became a non-believer. I've known other individuals who get hung up on some little picky point of doctrine and they leave the church, and pretty soon they don't even keep that doctrine. They don't keep any doctrines. It's a sad state that people get into. He says here, To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man or men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It's hard for us to believe that there are people out there that just plot certain things, but there are. When you're honest, it's hard to believe that they're dishonest people. But speaking the truth in love, 
may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. He's the real head of the church. From whom the whole body joined and knit together for whatever every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We have to be together and we are together. But we must maintain that togetherness. So they work together to do a mighty work. A work that will be far greater than any of us together or all of us together could do by ourselves. Christ is going to do it through us some way. And we must work together to do so, to, to be faithful to the one, the true head of the church. So let's see what the church says on the technical question. Why do we keep Pentecost next week, a week from tomorrow? Let's go back to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. And again, there's so much we could go into, and I'm not going to get into every aspect of this, but just touch on one or two aspects of it. But here in verse 15, this is a chapter that shows all the holy days put together, in one, all of them in one chapter. It says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Now, the day of Pentecost, we call it Pentecost, has to do with the, the number fifty, and uh, we, we see here that we are to count seven Sabbaths from a Sabbath, and then to the fiftieth day. But it doesn't tell us what day that is. Notice verse 11. When it talks about the wave sheaf, it says, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now we might say, well, thank you. Moses, why didn't you tell us which Sabbath it was? But, you know, God does reveal the answer to that question and makes it very clear which Sabbath that should be. Some say that the Sabbath that it's talking about is the first day of unleavened bread. The first day of unleavened bread is the 15th of the month. And if you were to count from the day after that, you would start counting on day 16 beginning with 16. And the first month has 30 days, so you have 15 days. The second month, 29 days, and so 15 and 29 come to 44. And when you take 50 days and you subtract 44, you come to the six, you come to number six, or the sixth of Sivan. And that's how many people observe it uh, to this day, they think it should be the 6th of Sivan. It's the same day every single year. Now, I know there's a little issue there if, on the obser observation of the new moon that went back a certain time. It could be a day one way or the other. But basically, today, people keep it on the 6th of, of Sivan. Now, the math is correct. 
But unleavened bread is not the correct Sabbath. And we can know that. Notice a key, a clue here in verse 10. It says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And then it speaks of on the day after the Sabbath. So it says, when you come into the land. Now, this is very early on. And so they waited the better part of 40 years, or actually 40 years, before they were able to observe this, this occasion, bringing the sheaf, first sheaf of the harvest, and offering it to God, the wave sheaf. It didn't happen all the time that they were in the wilderness. And so let's go to when they did enter into the land in uh, Joshua. We find that Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And we'll come to specifically the fifth chapter. This is the key chapter that we have here. It makes an interesting statement in verse 10. Joshua 5 and verse 10. It says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Now we're not going to go into a big long discussion of that, but it was at twilight, the beginning of the day. That's what we have certainly proved ourselves over a period of time. That it was at the beginning of the 14th, and they encamped on the plains of Jericho. They ate the Passover. Then it says they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So the day after the Passover, which is the 15th, right? It's the first day of unleavened bread. The day after Passover is the first day of unleavened bread. And they ate the produce of the land at that time. Now, there are some technicalities I'm not going to go into here. But we've looked at it, and we understand that they were eating of the produce of the land. And Mr. O'Gwen's article brings out some points on that, and you can read that. But the point is that they, the wave sheaf offering had to be offered prior to them eating the produce of the land. And so... The 15th day was the day that the wave sheaf was offered. Not the day after the 15th, but the 15th. So therefore, the first day of unleavened bread cannot be the wave sheaf offering because it's the day after the Sabbath, not the day of the Sabbath. If we want to take the high day, first day of unleavened bread, that's the wrong day. It can't be. Because they ate of the produce of the land on that day. They ate uh, of it because they offered the wave sheaf offering at that time, on that day. And so it says then the manna ceased on the next day after they had done so. So we know from this passage that it cannot be the first day of unleavened bread, the Sabbath that he's talking about. Since the 14th, the Passover is the 14th, the day after the Passover is the 15th. This means they ate the produce of the land on the first day of unleavened bread. And they could not do this until the wave sheaf was offered. 
Therefore, the wave sheaf was offered, it was offered that year, was not the first day of unleavened bread, but was a weekly Sabbath. It was a weekly Sabbath. So here's what we can know from this. The Sabbath spoken of in Leviticus 23, verse 11, cannot be an annual Sabbath, but must be a weekly Sabbath. Therefore, since the wave sheaf had to be offered after a Sabbath, the Passover that year must have fallen on a Sabbath day. It must have fallen on the Sabbath day because it was offered the day after a Sabbath, and it's not the first day of unleavened bread, but it's a weekly Sabbath. Then the Passover had to be on the 14th because the 15th was the the day that they ate of the produce of the land. But now we must ask a critical question. Which weekly Sabbath was it? Because again, Leviticus 23.11 doesn't tell us which Sabbath it was. I think virtually everybody understands that it was a Sabbath associated some way with the Days of Unleavened Bread. But this question is very important. Too often we say that the wave sheaf was offered after the Sabbath that falls during the Days of Unleavened Bread. We, we often make that statement because most of the time that is a true statement. But about one year in eight, the, um, the, the Passover falls on the Sabbath, which means the first day of Unleavened Bread is on Sunday, as we call it today, which means that the Sabbath that falls during the Days of Unleavened Bread is the last day of Unleavened Bread. Now, if it is the last day of Unleavened Bread and we wave the wave sheaf after the Sabbath that falls during Unleavened Bread, that puts the wave sheaf a week too late. It takes it out of it because here we read that the wave sheaf must have been offered on the day after the Passover. So more correctly we should say that the wave sheaf falls during the days of unleavened bread following the weekly Sabbath or a weekly Sabbath. But the wave sheaf must then fall during the days of unleavened bread. Again, I refer you to the Living Church News article. And uh, if any of you have now taken a rest, you can wake up for the, the next part. But, um, you know, if you never cover these things, then people say, well, how come you never told us? So once again, lesson number one, the church must decide true doctrine. The church has looked into this in great detail. It's been controversial amongst many people over a long period of time. And so the church must decide these things. Now that's what we're told in 1 Timothy 3, one of Dr. Mary's favorite scriptures. I say favorite, it's one that he referred to on many occasions. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14, verse 14 and 15, it says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am de uh, delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground or the bulwark of the truth. So here is a clear statement, the church of the living God. The church of God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's a very powerful statement. Now, we all understand because of past history that we don't follow individuals when they take us away from the truth that is clearly seen. 
And I'm not talking about one doctrine or some peripheral doctrine, but when people try to say that we don't have to keep the Sabbath, we don't have to keep the holy days, we can go out and eat a pork sandwich on the Day of Atonement, that's a problem. And we stay with the church. And God used Dr. Meredith to raise up or to restore and gave us a place to go. God is going to have His church all the way to the end. But it says here that the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the, church, of the truth. That's where truth is going to be expounded and explained. This actual verse is where we got the name Living Church of God. The church of the living God had already been taken from a legal perspective. We consider ourselves the church of God. But if we have to delineate a certain, you know, separate us legally from others, the living church of God. But this is the verse that this came from. But Dr. Meredith understood it is the pillar and the ground, or as he would point out, the bulwark of the truth. It's what holds up the truth. So that's our first point. Now let's go back to Leviticus 23. First point, our first lesson. Uh, Leviticus 23 once again. And let's look at a verse that, at least to me, seemed to be out of context. It's talking about the holy days. And it's mentioning uh, the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, the Wave Sheaf Offering, Pentecost. And then in the context of Pentecost, in verse 22, it says... When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you, when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the eternal your God. Now, that seems to be out of context a little bit here. I mean, why would he talk about how we plow our fields, or how we not plow, but how we harvest our fields, and pointing out that leave the, the corners uh, for the stranger and don't go over it where there's nothing left, but allow others to come in and glean from it. That's a, a, something that people have done in the past. If you go to Prince Edward Island today, we call it the Potatoes Everywhere Island. Uh, after they harvest the potatoes, there are certain ones that, that miss the, uh, you know, the, 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 the harvesting machine there. And you'll actually see, at least a few years ago anyway, you would see people out there gleaning, picking up potatoes. Very good potatoes. They were just too small to be captured by the, the machinery. And they're out there picking up potatoes. The farmers allow that to be done. I remember a farmer, an apple farmer up here in Asheville. Uh, he had apples and he told the members that they could come out after the pickers had gone through. He, he told the members they could come out and they could you know, pick some up off the ground or they could pick some from the trees or whatever. And a number of people went out that first year gleaning from his apple trees. And the next year he let them know. And people said, well, can't you just bring us some? <laughs> we, we don't understand today, do we? We expect everything to be handed to us. It's, it's only getting worse. Did you hear Zuckerberg here the other day is, is pushing for a basic... Uh, uh, wage for everybody whether you work or not no matter what you do you get a certain level that's been tried a few places like Venezuela and, and uh, China and various other places around the world more or less 
I, I don't know actually if it's been tried in Venezuela, but it's, it's that type of, of system. Uh, China, I remember when we went there back in 1984, the, uh, the guide said that the reason they were moving away from the, the basic communist system there was in, in terms of economics was because they found that there were too many, and he used, they, they love these expressions, American idioms, uh, too many lazy bones. <laughs> they found it didn't work. You want to know what the problem with France is today? That's a lot of the problem. People get paid, they can't be fired, but they won't work. Remember talking to one of our members over there. About 600 people on the city payroll, and about half of them do nothing. How can a country survive that way? And yet that seems to be the way that some people want us to go. So here is a scripture that talks about gleanings. It talks about how we harvest our fields and how we remember the poor and the stranger. The book of Ruth is read by Jews every year during this feast. So is there a lesson there in the book of Ruth that relates back to this? Let's go back to the book of Ruth. I think that our, our girls really love the story, but, you know, some of us guys like these. these um, <clears throat> one time I, I used the term chick flicks uh, in terms of, of, I think, the book of Ruth, but uh, I, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. Um, it, it's a beautiful story, as is the book of Esther. In fact, I, I think Esther is one of the greatest pieces of literature that's ever been written by. I was going to say penned. I don't know if they penned it or they chiseled it or however it was written. But nevertheless, it's, it's just a beautiful story. Now, let's notice here, in the book of Ruth, we're dealing with, first of all, with a famine and immigration to a different country. And so we have Elimelech and his two sons, and they go, and his wife, Naomi, and they go to uh, the country of Moab. And over the course of time, Elimelech dies. And also, Naomi's two sons. You know, death is, is there. And we have the death of three people that is mentioned there. And so Naomi decides to go back to her land, and she takes her two daughters-in-law to a certain point and says, it's time to depart. I don't want you to come back with me. You need to stay with your people. And then we have that, that beautiful, uh, I don't know what we call it, uh, piece there beginning in verse 16 where Ruth is not going to go back. She wants to go, with, uh, go back to Moab. She wants to go with her mother-in-law. And, you know, sometimes we have people that take this and they, they want to know, can we insert this into our marriage ceremony? Because it's such a beautiful piece. The problem is it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. I will take, you know, your God will be my God. Is that really what we want to say? You know, it, it just doesn't apply. This is a totally different situation, but it's a beautiful piece. It says, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
Lord, do so to me, and more also, if, some, if anything but death parts you and me. So she was loyal to her mother-in-law. And so they go back to the land of Israel. And it says in verse 19 that the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when, which is interesting because they came to Bethlehem. And we know that Bethlehem is significant for other reasons. But they came back there and the people recognized her, the people she'd grown up with many years before. And uh, they said, is this not Naomi? But verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Eternal has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Eternal has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Now, she felt that way at the time, as though God had dealt poorly with her. Oftentimes, when tragedies hit, we can sometimes. I say we can. I don't mean that everybody does, but sometimes people blame God. You know what's, what's wonderful is that, that God understands and He helps us to get through that. Now, we can't blame God for the rest of our life and expect to be in the resurrection, but at the same time, God is patient with us, isn't He? He loves us. He understands how we sometimes feel. But then we find verse 22, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, reading right in chapter 2, verse 1, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess uh, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find uh, favor. And she said to her, Let me put my cheaters on. I can read a little bit better, I think. This is what happens when you buy Kmart specials. They Sometimes you don't get the right, so you, now I've got to bend over. She said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now we're beginning to see there's a story here. There's something that's going to uh, happen. A boy meets girl. Uh, now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Eternal be with you. And they answered him, The Eternal bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? She caught his eye, and he wondered who she was. He didn't recognize her. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let us glean, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So he saw that she was a good worker. And her reputation had gone before because Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what 
the young men have drawn. Now, he is looking over her. He is watching over her. He is taking care of her. And she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground. I wonder how many women would do that today. And said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take up the, uh, take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And by the way, I don't mean that the ladies should do that. I'm just <laughs> saying that uh, that's not a new doctrine in the church. <laughs> I can only see what some people would make of that. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done. Notice he had heard of what she had done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. A place of refuge for her. And she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now, what we find here, and I'm not going to go through the whole story because maybe somebody's got that saved for next week and I don't want to spoil that. But nevertheless, uh, what we find here is an incredible story of faithfulness and of oversight and caring. Notice chapter 1, verse 22 again. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country. They came to Bethlehem when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. The beginning of the harvest season. And how long did she stay there working uh, the, the fields? Verse 23 of chapter 2. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So she worked all during that harvest season gleaning. Now, when it came to gleaning, uh, we see that Boaz uh, not only was, was kinder in that way, but he told the, the reapers to leave a little bit behind deliberately. And to help her. And she had a large amount that she had gleaned on that first day when she came home. Naomi was very pleased, no doubt. Let's notice the second chapter, verse 14. He said to her, okay, we read that. So she sat beside the reapers and passed parts. Oh, let me read that again, verse 14. Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread. Dip your piece of bread in vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, not just on the, the edges, but in amongst uh, the, you know, the heart of the grain there. And do not reproach her. And let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Can we begin to see that there is a connection between Pentecost and this story of gleaning in the book of Ruth that is read yearly by the Jews on this uh, day that's coming up a week from tomorrow? But what is the significance of this connection? 
Well, above all else, we see here that Ruth is a story, a love story. It's a story about marriage. It's a story about redemption. It's a story about caring and watching over. God's covenant with the New Testament church is also a marriage covenant. Notice Matthew 22 and verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. And so eventually he fills up the, uh, the guest for the wedding. But we see this analogy, this, this metaphor, you might say, uh, using marriage as the kingdom of God or the, uh, yes, the kingdom of God that we'll be born into. Notice Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse 6. We're very familiar with this. This is nothing that uh, I could probably just refer to it, but we'll just read it. It says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great trump, or great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This is Revelation 19 and then verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And as I've brought out before, but I know we have a lot of guests here, it's interesting that there are those who have made a whole doctrine out of the last half of verse 7 and said that, well, our, our duty today is just to get the bride ready. Well, the majority of the bride of Christ is in the grave. They've long died down through the last two, you know, 2,000 years. And if they'd taken that approach, where would we be? But the marriage lamb has come, and the wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And one final scripture on that is uh, Ephesians 5, where it makes it very clear. that the new covenant is a marriage covenant. In Ephesians 5 and verse 32, this is a great mystery. He's talking about marriage, about husbands and wives being joined together in marriage. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and the church it is a marriage relationship. Now, as I said, Ruth is a story about how Boaz watched over and redeemed Ruth and entered into a marriage covenant with her. The story takes place during the first fruit harvest. Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest, and also the Feast of First Fruits. Boaz was a type of Christ. And just as Boaz watched over Ruth, so Christ is watching over us. And just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, so Christ redeems us. So the second lesson that I want to pass on today is that Christ is our Redeemer who is constantly watching over His church. Just as Boaz watched over Ruth and made sure that she was safe, 
made sure she had plenty to eat and treated her with loving kindness. So Christ is watching over us. And just as Boaz redeemed uh, Ruth, Christ has redeemed us. He tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We've heard that verse a few times in the last few weeks. He will never leave us nor forsake us. You know, this is a lesson that we must not forget, that Christ is looking over his people, his church. It's a lesson that we must not forget. So the word of God is truly magnificent. It gives us layer upon layer of truth and meaning. He doesn't give us everything in one place, but he gives us the answers that we need to know. And he, and he builds this, this tapestry that is just magnificent. It's so deep, you, you never can learn everything about the Word of God. You can study it for 40 and 50 and 60 years and still gain new things, new insights out of it. Dr. Merrith was studying the Bible his last days. He never got tired of studying. I'm sure that there were times when it was work for him. But he never stopped studying because he knew that there was more to learn. So the Word of God is magnificent. It gives us layer upon layer of truth and meaning. And so today we focused on two lessons. Lesson number one, the church must decide true doctrine. And number two, Christ is our Redeemer and is constantly watching over his church and his people. These are appropriate lessons for us, and we must never forget these lessons.